intersections have a way of stopping you, don't they? You can be cruising along and you come to an intersection and you probably have to slow down or stop. Well, this morning we're going to study a man named Saul. We're going to see how dramatically the Lord intersected his life. He was on a journey and the Lord stopped him literally in his tracks because the Lord wanted to save him. And I want us to see this Damascus Road experience together this morning. And so keeping that in mind, turn with me to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 as we continue our study line by line, verse by verse, this wonderful book in the New Testament, Acts chapter 9. We're going to focus on verses 1 through 19. I'm going to read at the beginning of this time together, verses 1 through 9. I'd like to ask you this morning if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Acts chapter 9, verse 1, the Bible says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground and all those eyes were opened. He saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drink. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. It is a great privilege, Lord, to gather as a faith family, Lord, to fellowship, to praise you through song, and now, Lord, just to come before your word with humble, surrendered hearts, expecting you to speak to us. And so, Lord, I ask that you would move in our midst by the power of your Spirit. As I read this morning in Psalm 119, Lord, I pray that you would give us understanding of your Word, and I pray that you would incline our hearts to keep your Word. Lord, turn our eyes away from worthless things, and help us, Lord, to desire to have the, the, the wherewithal to, to act upon what we are encountered with today. Lord, I pray that because the Word of God was preached in this place, lives would be transformed. I pray, Lord, that, that many today would have a Damascus Road experience in this place. We love you. We praise you. We ask you for the grace to lift up the strong and mighty name of Jesus because it's all about Him. And we ask and pray all of this in His name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Now notice chapter 9 starts by mentioning Saul. 
It says, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, to understand who Saul was, we need to backtrack a little bit. I want you to focus your attention on the end of Acts chapter 7. If you remember, Acts chapter 7 is when Stephen, a deacon in the church, preached this wonderful message to the religious leaders. And when he mentioned Jesus Christ, the religious leaders flew off the handle. And they began to stone him. And look what it says in Acts chapter 7, verse 57. It says, But they, the religious leaders, cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. But when, and when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now notice what it says in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And so as we look back at this passage, we see that Saul was a young man in full agreement with the religious leaders who stoned Stephen. He believed Stephen needed to be stoned because he was preaching Jesus Christ. And so we see that Saul was an enemy of Jesus. He was an enemy of the cross of Christ. That, that's who he was. He wanted to see this preacher of the word, this preacher of Jesus, stoned and killed and silenced. And we see here in Acts chapter 9 that he is so relentless in his desire to stop Christianity that he goes to the high priest to get permission to go to Damascus in Syria and find other believers, it says followers of the way. We'll talk some more about that next week. He wants to find other believers and he wants to drag them out of their home for believing in Christ and take them back to Jerusalem and put them in jail. He was fiercely opposed to Christianity. He was fiercely opposed to Christ. You may wonder, what was going through Saul's mind at this point of his life? Well, I like how Warren Wiersbe says it. I think he gives us a good, a, a good sketch of, of what Saul believed. He writes, Had you stopped and asked Saul for his reasons to persecu- for persecuting the church, he might have said something like this. Jesus of Nazareth is dead. Do you expect me to believe that a crucified nobody is the promised Messiah? According to our law, anybody who is hung on a tree is cursed. Would God take a cursed, false prophet and make him a Messiah? No. His followers are preaching that Jesus is both alive and doing miracles through them, but their power comes from Satan, not God. This is a dangerous sect, and I intend to eliminate it before it destroys our historic Jewish faith. That's probably something like what was going through Saul's mind. He did not believe Jesus was alive. He did not believe Jesus was the Messiah. And he wanted to silence anyone who was preaching about Jesus and following Jesus Christ. But then, on his way to Damascus, Saul experiences an intersection, a spiritual intersection. God 
intersects his life. And there are really just two truths I want you to see, or two headings of this passage I want you to see this morning as we think about Acts chapter 9. First of all, I want us to think about the, the encounter on the Damascus Road. The encounter, what actually happened on that Damascus Road. The encounter on the Damascus Road. First of all, I want you to notice what he saw. What, what Saul saw. First of all, he saw a light from heaven. Look what it says in verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly, everyone say suddenly. Suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And so he saw this, this light from heaven. He knew immediately that it was supernatural. It was not of this world because in verse 4 it says, He fell to the ground. I don't know about you, but I don't fall to the ground when I switch on the, the, the lights or when, when I see a, a stoplight stop or, or a headlight coming. I don't, I don't fall to the ground. There was something about this light that was so dramatic, so glorious, that he fell to the ground. So he saw a light from heaven. It was a heavenly light, a supernatural light. Also, he saw the risen Lord Jesus. It says there in verse 3, it says, as he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. So, I believe that what Saul saw on the road to Damascus was Jesus himself. He said, wait a minute, wait a minute. It just says here that he saw a light. Why would you say that he actually saw Jesus Christ? Well, fast forward down to verse 17. This is the, the description of Ananias coming to to speak to Paul. We'll talk some more about that in a moment. This says, Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So Ananias said that that light was an appearance of Jesus Christ. And look in verse 27 of chapter 9. It says, but Barnabas took him, that's Saul, and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen who? The Lord. And so it was Saul's understanding and and Ananias' understanding and Barnabas' understanding that he had seen the Lord. And Paul shares this by way of personal testimony. Hold your place, but turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. Paul writes, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? And then look over in chapter 15, verse 8. Chapter 15, verse 8. He's sharing the outline of the gospel. He says in verse 6 that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom were still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, As to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So it was Paul's understanding that on the road to Damascus, he saw Jesus. So notice that he saw a light from heaven, and he actually saw the risen Lord Jesus. Now, we don't know exactly the form in which he saw Jesus, but he saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And then back in Acts 9, I want you to notice what he heard. What he heard. There in verse 4, he heard his name. Notice what it says. 
falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, it always amazes me. It always amazes me when I see God in Scripture calling someone by name. For some reason, it's just amazing to me to think that the creator of the universe, the one who spoke the stars into existence, the one that spoke the galaxies into being, the God of the universe cares enough about us to know our name. And he calls them by name, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So he heard his name, and he heard the voice of Jesus. It says there in verse 4, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? What voice? Is this just some voice in his head? No, look what it says in verse 5. He said, I am Jesus. So it's clear that the voice he hears on the road to Damascus is none other than the voice of Jesus Christ himself. Think, what did it sound like? Well, we don't know exactly what it sounded like on the road to Damascus. When he was on the earth, there was nothing that stood out about his voice that the Scripture records. But over in Revelation, uh, we see in chapter 1 that as John sees this vision of the risen Lord Jesus, that his voice is like the sound of many waters. So we don't know exactly what his voice sounded like, but he heard the voice of Jesus. Also, he heard on the road how evil his actions had been. Look what it says in verse 5. He says, Why are you persecuting me? Verse 4. And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, watch this, whom you are persecuting. Now it's interesting, isn't it, to note that, that, that Jesus says, You're persecuting me. Who was Saul persecuting? He was persecuting followers of Christ, right? So why would Jesus say, you're persecuting me? Because followers of Christ are part of the body of Christ. So to persecute the body of Christ is to persecute the head of the body, Jesus Christ himself. To persecute Christians is to persecute Jesus himself because the church is the body of Christ. And I believe in this moment, as he understands His persecution of the Christians is persecution of Jesus himself. I believe in this moment, Saul feels the weight of his sin. Turn over to Acts chapter 26. Saul shares this story in a personal testimony twice in the book of Acts. And look what it says in Acts 26 verse 14. He records something that's not recorded in chapter 9 something that Jesus said to him. In verse 14, he says, When when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? We read that in chapter 9. But then he records, It is hard for you to kick against the goads. This is is, uh, livestock language. It speaks of unruly livestock kicking against those trying to, to lead them in a certain direction. It speaks of stubbornness. It speaks of being unruly. It speaks of being rebellious. And so in this moment, as Jesus says, Saul, you're persecuting me, I believe that Saul understood he was rebelling against the one true God. I believe in this moment, he felt the full weight of his sin. But also, I want you to notice not only what he saw and what he heard, I want you to notice what he said. 
what Saul said. Back in Acts chapter 9, Saul asked two questions. The first is a question for information. Look what it says in verse 5 of Acts chapter 9. He said, Who are you, Lord? So he just wants to get it straight. Who is this appearing to me? Who is this speaking to me? It was a question of information. And Jesus answers him. He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Can you imagine the weight of that moment? A light, a glorious heavenly light. He sees Jesus, he hears this voice, and he says, who are you? He says, I'm Jesus. All those followers that you are dragging out of their homes and taking to prison, they are mine. I am Jesus. And so he asked a question for information, but then he asked a question, which I believe is a question of transformation. Again, turn to Acts 22, another passage where he shares his personal testimony. Acts 22, verse 10. This question is not recorded in verse of chapter 9, but it's important. Look what it says in Acts chapter 22, verse 10. And I said, this is Saul's personal testimony, and I said... What shall I do, Lord? I believe in this moment, Saul has been transformed. The first question, who are you, Lord, is a question of information. But when he says, what do you want me to do, Lord? That's a question of transformation. Everything had changed. Instead of rebelling against Jesus, now he wanted to obey Jesus. Why? His heart had been changed. He had been saved on the road to Damascus. This question indicates his surrender to Jesus and his desire to follow him. See, I believe what's happening here is Paul is quickly putting the pieces together. He understands the reality of the resurrection. Jesus is alive appearing to him. The reality of the resurrection authenticated the claims of Christ. Quickly in his mind, Paul's thinking like this. If Jesus is really risen from the dead, then he is who he claimed to be. He really is the Messiah. He really is the Son of God. He really is the Savior of the world. And he's thinking, if Jesus is who he said he is, then he is the authority. I must listen to him and I must follow him. And I believe almost simultaneously with these events, all of that's being processed in Saul's mind. So he asks this question of transformation. What will you want? What do you want me to do, Lord? And I would just want to say this parenthetically. You cannot embrace Jesus as Savior while rejecting him as Lord. It doesn't work that way. If you really want him to be your Savior, that means you want to follow him and you want to obey him. You believe in him so strongly by an act of volition that you want him to be the authority of your life. That's why the Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You can't embrace him as Savior, reject him as Lord. I I hear people say sometimes, well, when I was 10, I, I, I accepted him as Savior. When I was 19, I accepted him as Lord. Doesn't work that way. Doesn't work that way. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to dispel your religious experience, but here's what I'm saying. At 19, when you embraced him as Lord, that might have been your conversion experience. That might have been when you truly understood who Jesus was, and, and that's when you truly embraced him as Lord and Savior. 
Because there's no separation in the Bible that I want Jesus as Savior but not Lord. When you embrace Jesus, you embrace all of Jesus. He's the King of kings, the Lord. You can't say, well, I don't, want you to, I don't want you to call the shots over my life. I just want your fire insurance. You will not find that in the Bible. You won't. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So I believe in lordship salvation. That's when you, when you embrace him as Savior, you are also embracing him as Lord. As much as you know, you want him to rule and reign in your life. And so we see this question of, of transformation. But, but finally, I want you to see what he experienced. He, he sees some things, he hears some things, he asks some questions. But I want you to see what actually happened on the inside of Saul on the road to Damascus. First of all, Saul became a brand new person. And hey, that's what salvation is, right? Over in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17, the Bible says that if anyone is in Christ, I love this verse, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, he has made all things new. Aren't you glad that Jesus makes you new? I don't want to be the old Wade. I want to be the new Wade, the, the, the new man that Jesus Christ has made me by his grace. And so on the road to Damascus, Saul became a brand new person. And he received three things. First of all, he received a new purpose. A new purpose. Now, look with me back in Acts chapter 9. And let, let's look in verse 10. I want to show you what happens, the aftermath of his conversion on the road to Damascus. Acts chapter 9, verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. He said, here I am, Lord. Again, God knew his name. Isn't that awesome? Ananias. He said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. In other words, go to Saul, he'll be expecting you. I love that. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. He, here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. And so Ananias is saying, wait a minute, Lord, do you realize who Saul is? Do you understand that he's dragging people out of their homes and he's holding people's garments while they're stoning Christians? Do you understand who Saul is? I love how the Lord answers him here in verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed, entered the house, laying his hands on him. He said, Brother Saul... The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so Ananias obeys the Lord, goes into his home, lays his hands on him, and, and confirms what God is doing in Saul's life. Now, a couple of things I want you to think about this new purpose of Paul's or Saul's. First of all, new believers need follow-up. Isn't it interesting that while Jesus is dramatically intersecting Saul's life, he's also taking time to appear to Ananias to send him to Saul. Now listen to me. If Saul needed follow-up, we all need follow-up. Amen? 
When we get saved, the Bible says we are born again. We are brand new baby Christians. And babies, you know this, are not to be left alone, unnurtured, unfed, uncared for. Babies need nurture. Babies need care. Babies need folks looking after them. And it's the same with baby Christians. When someone gets saved, they need someone to come along beside them and teach them the basics of walking with Jesus. Over in the Great Commission, Jesus tells us this. You make disciples, you baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Then he said, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So our goal is not just to see people converted. We want to see disciples made, right? People saved, born again, but then taught how to walk with Jesus, how to obey Jesus, how to grow in their faith. And so here's the application. If you're a believer in Christ and no one's ever followed up with you, pray that God would send you an Ananias and then begin to look around you because I bet you there's an Ananias close at hand. And you may just have to have the courage to say, hey, I need someone to just just talk to. That helped me to understand what it means to walk with Jesus. Here, here's my testimony. I, I was saved when I was nine years of age. And, and I grew up in church, and I'm grateful for that. And I was in Sunday school and in worship service. And I was in, I was in discipleship training. And I was in Wednesday night uh, Bible study prayer meeting. And I was very involved in the life of the church. I would, I, I'd, I'd have soccer practice in high school. And I'd go to prayer meeting in my socks and, and, my socks and shin guards and shorts and sit there in the middle of a bunch of senior adults to, to, for the teaching of God's Word. I and mean, I was committed to being at church. But listen to me. I never had that kind of one-on-one relationship where someone really began to invest in me until I got into college. And my church had a new pastor. His name was Chris. And, and Chris began to take me fishing and invite me over to his house. And we began to just hang out and, and began to talk about the Lord and talk about ministry and talk about the Word of God. And, 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 and that, that stretch of my life is when I began to grow by leaps and bounds. And I believe we all need that Ananias in our life to teach us what it means to walk with Jesus, to challenge us, to hold us accountable, to encourage us along the way. So if you've never had an Ananias, you may have been saved for for 20 or 30 years. Ask God to send you an Ananias. And here's the flip side of that. If you're saved, listen, and you see someone else saved... You be their Ananias. Or make sure they find an Ananias. Because new believers need follow-up. If there's someone in your life right now you know that has recently met the Lord and they don't have an Ananias in their life, you either personally volunteer or you find someone and match them up. Amen? Because everyone needs follow-up. Saul needed it. We all need follow-up. But there's a second thing here. Not only do new believers need follow-up, but I want you to notice that instead of an enemy of Christ, which he was on the road to Damascus, he was now an ambassador for Christ. Everything's changed. Everything's changed. Look what it says over in Acts 22. Again, this is Paul's testimony of his conversion. Acts 22, verse 12.
Saul here records, One Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to every one of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And so God said, Saul, you're going to be my ambassador to the Gentiles. And Ananias comes along and confirms God's calling on his life. And so here's what God does. Here's what Saul experienced. He's, he, he, leaves, he leaves Jerusalem. He's an enemy of the cross. But by the time he gets to Damascus, he's an ambassador for Jesus. He received a new purpose. And you say, well, good for Saul. Hey, listen to me. If you're a follower of Christ, you've received a new purpose too. Your purpose is to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, to love your neighbor as yourself, and to make disciples of all the nations. That's your purpose. That's what God has called you to do. He's given you different outlets, different skills, different abilities, different careers, different things. But, what, but what, if you're a Christian, that is your purpose, to make much of Jesus until everyone has heard the good news that Jesus saves sinners. That's your purpose, just like it's Saul's purpose. So he receives this new purpose, but secondly, he receives a new name. A new name. Now, you notice I've been trying to call him Saul throughout this sermon. Now, you know that we mostly call Saul Paul. But the reason I've been calling him Saul is because Acts 9 uses the name Saul. The name Paul doesn't come along until Acts chapter 13. Look over in Acts chapter 13 with me. And it's not real dramatic. It's just Luke just mentions it kind of in passing. Look what it says in Acts chapter 13. It says, But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said. And so just in passing, Luke says, Saul, remember Saul? Well, he's also called Paul. And from this point on, Luke calls him Paul. So just like that, we see that there's a name change. Now, we don't know exactly why this, this name change happened, Perhaps uh, some, he got, received some wise counsel that said, listen, Saul has a lot of baggage with it, and, and perhaps you need to start calling yourself Paul to, to show people that you're a new person, to, to differentiate the change that God has made in your life. We don't know why he started going by Paul, but he receives a new name. So that's pretty cool. You say, you know, you know I, I've been saved by Jesus, and I'm a different person, but I still go by the same name. Be kind of cool if I had a different name. How many? How many think I'd be cool if I had a different name? Right hand. When I was, when I was in third grade, my favorite Florida State player was a quarterback named Rick Stockstill, and I decided in third grade I wanted to be called Rick. So I started to write Rick, Rick Humphreys on all my all my all my papers at school, and I brought home some papers, and and my dad, and mom, Luke said, "Who is Rick?" And I said, "Well, that's that's the name I want to be called now," and they stopped it right there. Uh, we've all had moments where we want to be called by a different name, right? Listen to me. If you're a believer, this is cool, you ready? You have a new name. Turn to Revelation real quick. Revelation chapter 2. I don't have a lot of time to spend on this, but just to Revelation 2.
Look what it says in verse 17. This is his message to the church in Pergamum in the first century. And it says in verse 17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone. This speaks when we get to eternity, we get to heaven. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone so that no one knows except the one who receives it. And so when you get to heaven, there's going to be some sort of interaction between you and King Jesus, and he's going to show you your new name. So wait, what is it? I don't have a clue. Only Jesus knows, right? But we'll know when we get there. But I believe that new name in heaven will be a, an eternal indicator of the change that Jesus Christ has made in our lives. Amen? Can't wait to see my Maybe it'll be Rick. I don't know. But, but I ha- I'll have a new name. A new name when I get to heaven. And if you're a believer in Christ, you will too. And then he received a new vision. Very quickly, back in Acts chapter 9. I don't have time to spend much time here. You know, this is a sermon in and of itself. Look what it says in Acts 9 verse 17. Acts 9 verse 17. It says, Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, taking food. He was strengthened. A new vision. See, I believe Saul understood the symbolism of what was happening. On the road to Damascus, when the light shines around him, he's blinded. Now, Ananias lays his hands on him, and scales fall from his eyes, and he can see again. See, I believe that Saul's recovery of physical sight pictured a spiritual reality. Spiritual scales had fallen from his heart. And now he could see the truth that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and he embraced him. And so he received a new spiritual vision. I could spend a lot of time there, but we're going to move on. I just want you to think with me about this encounter on the road to Damascus. A dramatic encounter. And there are many stories throughout God's word of dramatic encounters with with the Lord. And, And there are many stories through human history of dramatic encounters with God. I was reading this past week a biography about C.S. Lewis, and he mentioned in this biography a, 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 a woman that C.S. Lewis married later in his life. Her name was Joy Davidman. And I got interested, and I began to read about Joy Davidman. She grew up in the United States, and as a, as a young lady, she was uh, in the intellectual community. She was a prolific author and and poet, and was becoming well-known, had gone to some of the finest schools in the land. She graduated from high school when she was 14, so she was a, a, an intellectual giant. And, and Joy Davidman got involved uh, with the, the communist movement in the 30s in the United States, kind of anti-capitalist, and she was a, a socialist and a communist and an atheist. That goes along with that philosophy, and, and she married a man who was an atheist and a communist, and that, that was her life. And, and then this man who she married began to practice uh, serial adultery. I mean, he just began to ignore uh, his, his wife and, and was unfaithful to her. And, and one night, she received a call. She had two little babies in the nursery at their house, and she received a call from her husband, and her husband said, I'm going through a nervous breakdown. I'm not coming home tonight, and I don't know if I'll ever come home. And she walked in that room, the, the nursery where the two babies were, and, and here's what she records about that moment. She said, 
For the first time, my pride was forced to admit that I was not, after all, the master of my fate. All my defenses, all the, the, the walk of, of arrogance and self-love behind which I had hid from God went down momentarily and God came in. And she goes on to describe her encounter this way. He, it is infinite, unique. There are no words, there are no comparisons. There, those who have known God will understand me. There was a person with me in that room, directly present to my consciousness. A person so real that all my previous life was by comparison a mere shadow play. And I myself was more alive than I'd ever been. It was like waking from sleep. Well, after that night, she believed in the existence of God. So she said, I want to know who this God is. She began to to investigate other religions. And she came across some C.S. Lewis books and began to read his books about about Christianity. And, And she was driven by that to read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And here's what she said. When she got into the Gospels, according to her testimony, the one who had come to her in the nursery appeared again. And she wrote, he was Jesus. In other words, God intersected her life, showed her that he was real. And when she began to seek him, he showed her that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And she was gloriously saved. Dramatic intersection, dramatic encounter in her life. But before we close our time together, I want to just say a few words about the lessons from the Damascus Road. We've talked about the encounter on the Damascus Road. Now let's just walk away together with some lessons from the Damascus Road. Lesson number one, we should be grateful for our Damascus Road experience. We should be grateful for our Damascus Road experience. And and by our Damascus Road experience, I, I mean our salvation. The Damascus Road symbolizes or characterizes all of our conversions. Because if we've been saved, we've experienced something akin to what Saul experienced on that road. Now I want to say something very important. You may have been saved in a dramatic way like Saul, like Joy Davidman. You you may have had some kind of just, just some kind of incredible encounter with God that radically changed the direction of your life. Or you might have been saved in a less dramatic manner. Maybe your parents dropped you off at vacation Bible school and your teacher was faithful to share the good news with you. And when the teacher asked if anyone wanted to Invite Jesus into their life to be their Lord and Savior. You raised your hand and you sat down and talked to your teacher or to a a staff member or something like that. And you called upon the name of the Lord and he saved you. Might have been eight, nine years old. I was nine when I was saved. Now, that scenario, listen to me, is not as dramatic as Saul, is it? It's not as dramatic as Joy Davidman. But listen to me, it's just as important doesn't matter what the circumstances are surrounding your conversion. What matters is, are you converted? Because anyone that has met Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, anyone has been saved from hell. Their sins have been forgiven. They're going to heaven when they die. They have a relationship with God. And that's what matters. So don't think that because your conversion is not as spectacular, that it's not as important. 
If you're saved, your soul was saved from eternity to hell, just like Saul's was. It's just as important. So whatever your Damascus Road experience is, dramatic, run-of-the-mill, whatever it is, be grateful that you've met Jesus. Be grateful that Jesus Christ has saved you. We should be grateful for the time when we met Christ. I, I just can't get over the fact that God saved me. Look at me, look at me. I don't deserve it. I don't deserve his grace and mercy and love. I don't deserve his forgiveness. But he saved me by his grace and for his glory. I can't get over the fact that at nine years of age, God knew my name and God intersected my life and God saved me. So be grateful for your Damascus Road experience. But secondly and last, we'll be through with this. Understand that no one is beyond the grace of God. What Saul's conversion should do for you and for me is to remind us that there is no one beyond God's reach. R. Kent Hughes says it like this, The story of Saul's spiritual transformation ought to remind us never to write anyone off as being beyond the love of Christ. We may do so with relatives whom we know have heard the word for years without response or a sinner, who has gone to a crass level of depravity, or someone who has gone into a cult or is propagating false doctrine. But Scripture is clear. God can reach anyone. And so listen to me. Don't give up. Keep praying. Keep sharing. Keep loving. Don't give up. Saul reminds us that the hard, hardest of sinners can be transformed in a moment. And so no one is beyond the grace of God. That that prodigal that you've shed so many tears over is not beyond the grace of God. That ungodly politician that stands for all the wrong things, they're not beyond the grace of God. That atheistic college professor that ridicules your Christianity, they're not beyond the grace of God. That crude and lewd co-worker is not beyond the grace of God. Saul reminds us that we should not give up on those who seem the least likely to be saved. Because God can intersect their life in an instant. And we need to pray that he would do that. So here's the point of this entire sermon. By the way, I've been so excited about preaching this passage. I've been pastoring now since I was 21. And and, and I don't ever remember preaching this passage by itself. I've I've referenced it a lot, but I've never remembered preaching Acts chapter 9. I couldn't wait to get here and preach it to you. And and here's the the, the major point of of this passage. We should remember and rejoice in our Damascus Road experience. And we should ask God to intersect others' lives in dramatic ways. I think that's something good to walk away with. Thank God for what he's done for you. And then ask God to do it again. In your loved one's life. In that person who's hard-hearted against the gospel. Pray for them. Share with them. Love them. You never know when God might radically and dramatically intersect their life. Intersections have a way of... Stopping you, don't they? We want to pray that those that don't know Christ are stopped in their tracks 
by the reality of the risen Christ and the amazing grace of God.